You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we say that believing that you are the one who never forsakes us, your children. You are the one who is always faithful. You are the one, Lord, that we can lean on fully with no hesitancy. Lord, we believe that you are the only constant. You refer to yourself over and over again in scripture that you are the rock that never moves that underneath are the everlasting arms that carry us all of our days. And so we praise you for that. And as we look back on 2016, we can see your arms carrying us. And as we look forward to 2017, we believe that if you have been faithful in the past, then of course you'll be faithful in the future. And so Lord, we look to you now in your word as we begin this year with worship, with our eyes on you. Lord, we pray that you would speak by your spirit through your word. Lord, that you would transform our lives today as we look into your perfect word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you do so, feel free to grab your Bible and turn it open to Luke chapter 2. We are hopefully going to wrap up the series that we started in the month of December, the Christmas series about Jesus, about the Christmas story, the Christmas series that we did, it's called For All People. And we're going to look at a story today that sometimes gets missed in the Christmas story. We kind of, you know, you get so many chapters in, and then Christmas hits, and then you're done, you came, maybe you jump to another part of the Bible, and you kind of often miss the passage that we're going to look at Today, If you don't have a Bible with you today, we want to make sure a copy of God's Word gets into your hand. So just raise your hand if you need a Bible. An usher's coming. They're going to hand those out, put it in your hand. If you don't have one, you get to keep it. It's a gift. If not, feel free to borrow it for today. We are going to be in Luke chapter 2. Now, whether or not you're a baseball fan or not, uh, 2016 was pretty special. You may have heard about it in the news. You may have heard what happened in the World Series. I mean, sometimes people, they love a certain team and they wait as a fan, sometimes years, for their team to win a championship. Sometimes fans wait decades if you're a Leafs fan. Sometimes you wait a century. And this is the case for any fan who calls themselves a Chicago Cubs fan. This is exactly what happened. They have waited. In fact, generations of Chicago Cubs fans have lived and died without seeing the Cubs win the World Series. And so when you think back to 1908, that was the last time a Cubs fan saw their team win the World Series. It was the same year that for the very first time anyone ever saw the Model T Ford built. It was the first time anyone had ever 
flown as a passenger on a thing called an airplane. It was the first time that year that anyone had ever seen a Gideon Bible put in a hotel room. The year was 1908, the last time any Chicago Cubs fan saw their team win the World Series. Until, of course, November 3rd, 2016. Cubs fans that had been waiting and believing that their time would come, that maybe this was the year, finally got to see in the wee hours of the night on November 3rd, in the 10th inning, their team win the World Series in Game 7. And much rejoicing ensued, and a 108-year and 20-day wait came to an end. Now that's baseball. But we wait for all sorts of things in life, don't we? I mean, we wait for a job. Sometimes we're waiting for that university or college to get back to us. Did we get accepted or not? Sometimes we're waiting for retirement. Sometimes we're just waiting for the summer holidays. Sometimes we're just waiting for the weekend. We wait for all sorts of things. We put our hope in many things just to bring us some sort of relief, some sort of help from our tiredness, from our exhaustion, even our brokenness. And if we're honest, our waiting runs much deeper than that. We're not just waiting for the weekend. We're not just waiting for a World Series, as good as those things are. We're waiting for help. We're waiting for some someone to come and actually fix our brokenness, the pain that we feel, the, the, sometimes the ache and the thorns that are just constantly there in our life. We're waiting for someone to relieve us, relieve us of these pains and sufferings, of our brokenness, even our sin, and the shame that gets so attached to it, and the guilt that we feel. Deep down, we're all really desiring and waiting for someone to rescue us, someone to save us, someone to heal us on the inside and on the outside, someone to fix us, both who we are, but also our world. And if this describes you, if this describes your experience of waiting, of longing, sometimes silently deep down, sometimes quite vocally out loud, if this describes you, then you will be able to understand a little bit of what it was like to be in the first century as a Jew who had been waiting not just 108 years, but hundreds and hundreds of years for God to fulfill his promise to send a champion to send a rescuer, a healer, a savior who would save them both individually as a people and would also heal the world. You see, ever since Adam and Eve, way back in Genesis, thousands of years ago, God had made a promise. And the Jews had been waiting for God to fulfill this promise that God would send a son of Eve that would come and reverse the curse that Adam and Eve brought in through their sin. They've been waiting ever since Abraham, who also received a promise from God that his son, his seed, would be a blessing to all nations. The Jews had been waiting ever since King David, who also received a promise to have a son who would be a king, 
who would rule over the world and bring that blessing of Abraham to all nations. And they had been waiting, and they had been waiting and believing that God would send this one, this son, this rescuer, this curse reverser, this serpent crusher, this savior to them and heal them and heal the world. But now, at this point in first century Judaism, it was thousands of years since God had given that promise to Adam and Abraham. It had been hundreds of years since since David, and it had been about 400 years of just complete silence from God. And people were beginning to wonder, is, are, is God going to fulfill these promises? And yet many in Jerusalem continued to believe, continued to hold on to hope, continued to wait on the Lord with faith. Often just regular people, just regular Jews, your average Joe continuing to trust in the promise of God that he was going to come. He was going to send a savior, a rescuer, a Messiah. Now, imagine that you were there, that you were a Jew in Jerusalem at that time. And imagine you're just going about your regular day, you're just buying kosher groceries, and you hear a report a strange report several months ago that this priest had come in to serve and do his kind of service and time at the temple. And while he was there, it said that he had a, a meeting with an angel. And this angel announced that he would miraculously have a son in his old age. And this son would prepare the way for this long-awaited Messiah. And then you hear this other report that there's this teenager from Nazareth who happens to be related to the priest who was in town several months ago who also had a meeting with an angel and she was told that she would actually be the mother of the Messiah. And then, if that wasn't confusing enough, a bunch of no-name shepherds just last week started announcing that they had seen this army of angels in the sky announcing that the Messiah had actually been born that night and that they had seen him face to face. And you're walking around getting your groceries and you're thinking, what is going on? Should I really be believing these reports? And I'm sure there's many people in Jerusalem at that time that had heard these things and rumors about these things, and they all thought it was nonsense. I mean, they had seen Messiah's people claiming to be one come and go, and they were by no means were gonna set their hope on somebody again and have their hopes all dashed to pieces. But there were also many people who were still believing, still waiting, maybe hearing these reports and beginning to wonder, is this the one? Is this the Savior we have been hoping for. And I'm sure Joseph and Mary ran into both these kinds of people when they went to Jerusalem that day and went up to the temple. And we pick up the story here in Luke 2. It's about a week after Jesus has been born. And Joseph and Mary, they're still in Bethlehem, and they're, up, they're going up to the temple. Verse 21, we'll pick it up there. It says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, 
He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Mary and Joseph here, they're just obeying God's word. They're just simply obeying the word of the Lord here. They're aware of, in Leviticus 12, verse 3, that on the eighth day, any Jewish boy had to be circumcised. And on the day that he was circumcised, he was named. We saw this with Zechariah. Do you remember? Zechariah, on the eighth day, they circumcised his son, John, and they named him John. And that's what they were supposed to do according to the word of the Lord, according to God's law. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph are doing here. They're circumcising their son and naming him Jesus, the name that the angel had given both Mary and to Joseph to name this child, the name that the father had for his own son, the name Jesus, which in English is Joshua, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which in every language means the Lord saves. This is the one. And then Mary and Joseph, they not only fulfill this command, but they choose to hang out in Bethlehem for another month or so because they know on the 40th day, there's a few more commands that they will need to fulfill for Jesus. They're also aware of these other commands. Let's read here in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. These two verses, sometimes you're kind of reading it and you're kind of like, what is going on here? The rules and this and that and according to what law and all that's going on here is that Mary and Joseph, they know the word. They know God's law, and they're seeking to fulfill it. They're aware of two laws in particular. One is from Leviticus 12 that talks about the purification rite, this command of God for a purification ceremony, that 40 days after a son is born, that the mother is to offer either a lamb and a dove or a pigeon, or if you can't afford a lamb, then just two pigeons or two doves. And the fact that Mary and Joseph go with the two dove option indicates that they were not well off. They were pretty financially strapped. And that's not surprising. They're from Nazareth. It's, it's a kind of an obscure, poor village in northern Israel. And here they are now just visiting Bethlehem. They don't know how long they're going to be here they're just making ends meet, but they want to fulfill God's law. And so they have come to fulfill this purification rite. But not only have they done that, just as a note, some of you may be wondering, well, didn't the Magi come and drop some serious gold and frankincense and myrrh down for Jesus? I mean, that surely would have bought a few sheep. But we need to remember those Magi, those wise men did not come for months afterwards and so things were still pretty tight financially for Joseph and Mary, and yet they fulfill God's law here. The other law that they want to fulfill is the dedication rite, the dedication ceremony. Again, Mary and Joseph, they're aware of God's law, spoken of in Exodus 13 and Numbers 18, where 
God says that the firstborn child that opens the womb is dedicated to the Lord, devoted to the Lord, owned by God, and is to be, de- be redeemed back by the parents. How? Through a sacrifice of those two doves, two pigeons, and five pieces of silver. And this was a, a way that every parent, every couple got to remind themselves of what God did for Israel way back in Egypt at the Passover when God spared every firstborn child of Israel by substituting that child for a lamb that they sacrificed and put the blood over the doorpost so that God would pass over Israel and spare all their firstborn children. And so by way of reminder, God commands every parent to redeem back and be reminded of this Passover for their firstborn child. And this is exactly what Joseph and Mary are doing. So we see here they're fulfilling commands. They're, they're fulfilling the purification right. They're fulfilling the dedication right. They're fulfilling circumcision for Jesus. Why? Why is this all important? Why is this stuff kind of in the Bible? It's super important because we need to see that Jesus is fulfilling the law of God. That through the obedience of his parents, Jesus, even as an infant, is beginning to fulfill God's law. This is so critical because if these commands are not obeyed, if this law is not fulfilled, then Jesus is not perfect. And if Jesus is not perfect, he is no longer qualified to be our Passover lamb, the one perfectly suited to save us. Because Jesus would no longer be that perfect savior. He would actually need a savior as a savior. He would actually need a substitute uh, or a sacrifice to deal with his own sins. He, He wouldn't be able to just take on our sins and save us. He would have to deal with his own. And so it's so important here that we see Luke, the author of this book, beginning to very clearly show us, the readers, Jesus is perfect. He's fulfilling the law. He's fulfilling the law so that by faith, you do not have to. Praise be to God that Jesus fulfills the law, even as an infant. And Jesus now will see eventually at the end of his life, having completed that perfect record of righteousness, that perfect record of obedience to God, is now able to share that record of righteousness with everyone who trusts in him. You see, we all need to be saved. But the only way to get saved is to be declared right in God's sight. And the only way to get declared right in God's sight is if Jesus gives you a righteousness. He gives you New clothes, because all the clothes that we're wearing are filthy rags. All the stuff that we do is, is always stained and tainted with sin. We need someone to give us something we can't earn as a gift. We need to be gifted righteousness. Well, where's that going to come from? We can't buy it. We can't inherit it. We can't earn it. It needs to be given by faith from someone who earned it. 
Jesus Christ. And we begin to see him already fulfilling that righteousness which will eventually be given to all those who trust in him. We are saved by faith. We are declared right in God's sight by trusting in the Lord. This is nothing new. We see this right at the very beginning of the Bible. Abraham himself in Genesis 15, it says of him, he believed the Lord and he, that is God, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything right here beyond trusting in the Lord. And as we've seen, and you may remember in previous sermons as we've been going through the book of Luke, there's been others who have been called righteous. Joseph is actually called just and righteous. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are declared righteous in God's sight. How? By faith. They were trusting in the Lord, waiting on the Lord, believing in the Lord, and it was gifted to them, credited to them as righteousness. We need to see the importance of Jesus here fulfilling the law. But we also see here in verse 25 someone else who is declared righteous in God's sight, who is also waiting on the Lord for his promised Messiah, and that's Simeon. Verse 25 says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. What was he doing? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says here that Simeon was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, believing and waiting upon the Lord that he would send his Messiah. He would send literally the consolation of Israel. And what's that? That's kind of a unique phrase. Well, it was one of the phrases that was used to describe the Messiah. This Messiah, this coming Savior, is the consolation incarnate, the very comfort of God who comes to dwell with us. This is the very healing and the saving that people were waiting for, this promise that God would send, this consolation, not just in this kind of impersonal package, but in a person who would come and comfort and save his people. This is who Simeon was waiting for. This is what the Old Testament prophesied. In Isaiah 40, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. And again, in Isaiah 57, it says, I have seen his ways, that is the ways of Israel, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. This was the great hope and longing for God's people. They knew that they had sinned. They knew that they had broken God's law. They knew that they needed mercy. And they knew that God had promised mercy. They knew that God had promised to send consolation and comfort and healing in this Messiah that they were waiting for. And now, by God's Spirit, the Spirit of God was beginning to move and confirm that now was the time, that the time had finally come, that the wait was finally over. We see in verse 26, it had been revealed to him, that Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death 
before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. God supernaturally had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death until he had seen the Messiah. That he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. What a responsibility. That is absolutely incredible. He was like a watchman, a sentinel that was there placed in Israel to keep watch and to look out for the Messiah and to point people of Israel to the Messiah when he came. And you can just imagine Simeon going to the temple day after day, week after week, seeing family after family, child after child, for years and years wondering, is this the one? Is this the son that we've been waiting for? I'm sure he saw many prestigious families come in with lots of glitz and glamour, very well-to-do families, quite established perhaps in good circles that have good connections that would be helpful and advantageous for a Messiah. But he saw them all come and go. And he's continued to wait until the Spirit led him to this poor couple from Nazareth holding a little baby And like the Lord, he did not judge them by their appearance on the outside, but he trusted the Lord who sees the heart and had told Simeon, this is the one. This is the one whom you have been waiting for. And he takes up this child Jesus in his arms and blesses God. And we get to hear this blessing here in verse 29. It says, Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon announces This incredible truth, the truth that we must also see is that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Simeon says that his eyes have now seen God's salvation. Literally, his eyes have seen the one fitted to save, the one perfectly suited to save. Why? Because this is the one that the Lord not only sent, but is the Lord himself who was sent. That Jesus is the perfect one to reconcile God back to man because he is now the perfect God-man himself. Fully God and fully man. And in his humanity, he's able to take on our human sins. But in his divinity, he's able to take on an infinite number of human sins and pay for their infinite penalty all at once. No one is like this. Jesus is the perfect savior, the one perfectly suited to save. And this is the one Simeon sees. And he rejoices. 
he rejoices. He is now able to see the one that he's been living for, waiting for. He's now able to be dismissed from his post and his role as God's watchman and sentinel. He is now released to go to the very place that Jesus has come from, heaven. But before he goes, he makes us very clear about what this Christ is going to be. He's going to be exactly who God said he would be. Back in Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God says, It's too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, God is not just interested in reaching one people, his beloved people Israel. He is interested in reaching all peoples from every nation, tribe, and language. This is why Jesus is called a revelation, sorry, the light for revelation to the Gentiles. Because when they hear about him, they will see his light. And when they trust in him, they will be saved out of their sin and darkness and ignorance and idolatry into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And he's also called a light for glory to Israel because it was Israel who had this privileged promise that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, this light, would actually come from them, from their own people, and be a Savior for them and for all people. And so it was for their glory and for their joy as well that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from them to be for them and for all peoples and fulfill all those promises of Adam and of Abraham and of David. This is the one, the light for all nations. This is why we've been calling this Christmas, this Christmas season and series of preaching called For All People. From Luke 2, verse 10, which the angel says, For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is the very fuel of the mission of the church. Not only our church here at Harvest, but for the church globally. For all followers of Jesus Christ. To go into all nations. To go to all peoples. To make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ the light of Jesus Christ has been shining and spreading across the globe for two millennia now, beginning in the Middle East as people heard about Jesus Christ and put faith in him, spreading across North Africa, producing some of the greatest theologians and pastors the church has ever seen, spreading even into India way before the gospel ever came to where my ancestors come from in Britain. My ancestors, they needed the gospel desperately. They were these wicked, pagan, Celtic worshipers that worshiped the dead and practiced witchcraft and used to commit human sacrifice, utterly dark and lost and dead in their sins until the light of Jesus Christ came and they put their faith in him and they were not just saved but transformed and began to live a new life. And this is true of all those who put their faith in Christ. That's a bit of where my people, when they first heard the gospel. But what about you? 
each of us, in God's wisdom and creativity, we all come from different groups, different ethnicities. And the gospel has come to many. Has it come to your people? Maybe in this millennium? Maybe in this century? Maybe it was just this decade where the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ has come. And maybe, maybe you're here and you have not actually heard of this Jesus That the light of the gospel has not actually shined upon your people group yet. Did you know that there's actually over 16,000 different people groups on this globe, of which there's over 6,000 still who have not heard of Jesus Christ, who have not yet seen the light of the gospel? They continue in their sin and ignorance and in the darkness They have not yet heard about Jesus. And my prayer is that we as God's people would be like Simeon, who having seen the light, having seen Jesus Christ and heard of the gospel, that we could not help but share it. We could not help but shine it, whether here or there, whether in Brampton going across the street or going across the world to those who have not yet heard. We live in such unique times, don't we? In such a unique city where we have people from all cultures coming to this epicenter, this Brampton. Why? Why would God be doing all of this? Not merely for educational purposes or economic purposes, as good as those are. Is it not because he cannot wait to hear, to have those who have not yet heard Jesus hear? Is it not that God cannot keep himself from bringing the nations to his son. He cannot stand that people would stay in darkness. They must come to the light. And so he moves international policy in countries and geopolitical places just so that people will see Jesus Christ and be saved. Mary and Joseph are hearing these things from Simeon. And it says they marvel. They marvel. They just, they're trying to wrap their head around what Simeon is saying. That this baby boy is the light of the world. But just as they think that he's wrapping up and finishing what he was saying, he actually turns his attention to them and speaks directly to Mary. And for the first time, we hear that Jesus isn't going to be exactly the Messiah everyone thought he would be. Jesus, for the first time that we hear of, isn't going to bring a a kind of salvation that just immediately makes everything happiness and bliss and lollipops. We hear for the first time that this baby boy who is bringing the peace and the salvation of God is actually going to bring conflict and turmoil between people and inside of people. That this Jesus, this Messiah, will actually cause conflict of the soul because this Jesus, like no other, is going to reveal the heart and the thoughts of people. He's going to expose the heart Simeon, turning to Mary, says in verse 34, he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child 
is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon wants Mary to know that not everyone is going to see Jesus the same way. Not everyone's going to see him as the Messiah and respond with faith and joy like Simeon did. No, it says here that for many, Jesus will be a sign that is opposed. That is, he's going to be a gift that's going to get rejected. It's like that, that gift that, that's under the Christmas tree that a child looks at, grabs and goes over to the trash and dumps it. It's exactly how people are going to treat Jesus. Even from his own people, even from those of descent of Israel, they're going to not view him as the promised Messiah, but instead they're actually going to call him a demon and condemn him to be crucified. But not everyone. There will be some who believe And it's like this. It's kind of like when you walk into an apartment, an old, dingy apartment that hasn't been used in a long time, and you flick on the lights, and immediately two things typically happen. All the cockroaches hide and hiss, and all the moths fly to the light. The cockroaches hate the light, but the moths are so attracted to it. And light has that effect all the time. It repulses and attracts. And so does Jesus. As the light of the world, Jesus is always creating these two kinds of responses in people. Either people will will hide and hate Jesus because his light is shining on them and it's exposing all their sin and they hate that. Or that the light of Jesus is shining on people. And yes, it's exposing their sin, but they come to Jesus. They fly to Jesus in faith and ask him to forgive the very sin that he's revealing in them, knowing that they have no hope outside of the light that is exposing it. When Jesus exposes our hearts, he brings all of us to a point of decision. Will we hide and hate the light or will we embrace the light by faith? Will we hate the light because it's exposing our sin and we want to seek ways to snuff it out and put it out because we hate what it's doing and exposing and revealing us? Or will we fly to the light by faith and invite the light to shine on us and in us to forgive us and heal us, and transform us. Will we be cockroaches or moths? Jesus is the light of the world, and we will be one or the other. And depending on our response to Jesus, the text actually says that we will either rise or fall. That those who, in their pride, reject Jesus and their need for him as a savior and exalt themselves as being able to save themselves, the text says that Jesus will actually bring them low 
and judge them in their sin and cause them to fall by his wrath. But those who in humility fly to the light and come to Jesus with faith, trusting in him as their Lord and Savior, that he actually causes them to rise out of their ignorance and sin and death and out of their condemnation and causes them to rise to forgiveness and eternal life all by grace as a gift. He will cause the rise and fall of many. Jesus and his light will bring us all to this point of decision. But Jesus' call and his light is not meant just to be a one-off offer. He doesn't just want us to come once to the light, be saved, and then fly away. But it's this constant coming to the light again and again. In fact, the scripture calls and talks about this, that we are to actually walk in the light, that we are actually to live in the light. We don't fly away, but we keep, I don't know if you've ever seen that at night, moths just keep fluttering around the light. They can't get enough of the light. All they want to do is get closer to the light. That is what we are actually designed to be like. We are designed to be drawn to Christ, to continue to pursue Christ, inviting his light to shine on our life, not only to bring us to salvation, but to continue to shine in all those areas of our life, to continue to expose sin where sin is, not just not to shame us, but so that we can repent and come closer to him and grow more and more in his likeness. He's constantly sending his light out and calling us to have our minds renewed so that we would actually get a clear understanding of who he is and get rid of old misconceptions of who we think God is or who our culture says God is or what our society thinks he is. He wants to purge our mind of all of those distorted ways of thinking about him as we come into the light and the light renews our minds, the light of God's word. And he wants to clarify for us, not just that the light saves us, but sanctifies us, making us more like Christ. And it happens over a long period of time. We keep coming to the light over and over again. We're not being saved over and over again. Yeah, we're saved once, but we continue to pursue Jesus forever, ongoingly, continuously. And it's not an easy road. This path, this flight to Jesus is often full of pain and trials that are quite confusing, honestly. I mean, Mary is hearing this message herself, this warning that even though she trusts in Jesus as her Messiah, she will experience such pain, even as a believer, that it would be like as if a sword was piercing through her own soul. It's a double-edged sword for Mary. I mean, for her, not only will she one day have all of her hopes for a Messiah completely dashed on the cross when she sees Jesus crucified, but added to that pain is a parent's agony of watching their own child die. Mary's pain 
It's quite acute, quite agonizing. She saw her hopes of Messiah get buried along with her own son. And even though her pain in one way is unique to her, and yet in another way it's quite common for us, isn't it? We often in our life as we continue to pursue Jesus go through seasons that can be very painful and very difficult and we begin to feel maybe something what Mary would have felt, confusion, disillusionment, pain, suffering, sorrow, doubt, persecution at times and even at times despair. And we can begin to wonder, did I make the right decision? Did I choose the right Savior? Did I put the, my hope in the right Messiah? Or did I get it wrong? Should I keep going? Should, should I keep waiting? Should I keep believing? And in these moments, we, we need to remember Jesus himself. Jesus himself who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses because no one has waited and believed in God through worse conditions than Jesus. Because it was him who, in going to the cross, willingly choosing to die for us, to be the curse for us, to be forsaken for us, to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf, even then, Jesus continues to trust in his Father, continuing to trust in the Lord, so that we would never have to be forsaken, so that we would never have to be cursed, so that we, all of us who are trusting in Jesus, may never hear silence from heaven, but always have the Spirit who speaks God's word, the Father's voice, to us, even in our darkest moments. Jesus waited with faith, and we benefit from that as a result. And this is true. It's true of us today, but it's also true of all those, especially this person that we see at the very end of our passage today. Her name is Anna. Someone who is often missed in the Christmas story. Someone yet who was at the temple with Mary and Joseph on this, last, on this day here. We're introduced to her, this lady who has been waiting and believing in the Lord through untold sorrows and trials over many years. We read of her in verse 36. It says, there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks 
to God. And speak of him, that's Jesus, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here is perhaps one of the most underestimated saints in all the Bible. I mean, we don't know if she was 84 or if she was a widow for 84 years, which would probably put her around 105 years old, depending on when she got married. We don't know her exact age, but we get a glimpse of her long and difficult life. She was well acquainted with grief, and yet she was a woman full of faith. She was constantly at the temple, worshiping, praying, fasting, longing for God to send his Messiah for years and decades. And I'm sure there were people that were there that would come to the temple and go, oh, there's Anna, she's still here. And they'd kind of look at her with scorn. I mean, she was very vulnerable and weak and maybe even foolish for putting all of her eggs in that basket and having so much hope in the Lord. But she continued to be faithful. And in God's sight, she was precious, strong in the faith, and worthy of imitation and honor. And in God's kindness, as he was stirring up Simeon to come to the temple at that very hour that Jesus was there, he was at the same time stirring up Anna to come over and hear the announcement that Simeon makes that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. The waiting is done. Your longing is fulfilled. And Anna can't keep it inside. She immediately begins to give thanks and to speak of Jesus to everyone who is there who is also waiting, waiting for the Messiah. In a lot of ways, Simeon and Anna are like those two watchmen spoken of in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 says, The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Why? For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Beloved, we must see what Anna saw, that he redeems the waiting. He redeems the waiting. He doesn't leave them hanging. He fulfills their longing. It doesn't matter how long you've waited it doesn't matter how deep the valley has been. It doesn't matter how long the pathway that God has had you on is. God always comes. Jesus will come. He came for Anna. He came for Simeon. He came for Israel. He came for all nations. He came for you and I. This law fulfilling, this light of the world has come. And he's coming again. Jesus promises after he died and three days later rose again and lived and was among us for 40 days and ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of God. Before he went up, he said, I'm coming back down and I'm coming again to rescue and welcome and fulfill the longing of everyone who trusts in me and continues to wait for 
my coming. I'm coming for them, and I will bring them into my home. They will be with me forever and ever. My question today for us is, are we waiting? Are we among those people that Anna would have spoken to? Those who are waiting, those who are trusting. Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you waiting for his return? Are you like Anna who is praying to see the face of Jesus? Are you like Simeon who is longing to announce that the Savior has come? If so, Jesus calls us to keep expressing our faith that our waiting would be heard in our prayers, would be seen in our witnessing and announcing. But it would also be seen in the Lord's table. You know what's interesting in 1 Corinthians 11? It says that when we eat of the bread as Christians and drink of the cup, we actually proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That communion and the Lord's Supper is actually a way for the waiting to express their faith in Jesus' coming. Isn't that amazing? And that's what we want to do today. The ushers are going to be distributing plates, each with cups. There's, there's bread and juice in, in two different cups. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are one of those who are waiting for his return, then I encourage you just to take a pair and hold it. If you are wondering, well, I don't know. I've kind of given up hope. I've had a rough 2016. Then Jesus wants you to know that he is, there is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He knows your 2016. He knows your 2017. He's inviting you to believe in him, to trust in him, to wait upon him, for he will come. He will come to you and supply all that you need as you continue to trust in him. And you have an opportunity to express your faith in him as you take communion. If this is new to you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, maybe you're hearing about the light of the world for the first time. We just encourage you to let that plate pass down the row and then come and talk to someone you've seen up here. I would love to talk to you. Or maybe just talk to the person beside you and ask them, who is this Jesus? Who is this light of the world? We want to tell you about Jesus. So I'm going to encourage the ushers to come forward and encourage us who are waiting upon the Lord to take a set of cups and wait and use this time to think about how Jesus is perfectly suited to save you, how he has been perfectly fitted to save your own soul in your own story. Let me pray. Father, we love you and thank you. And we bless your name and ask you, God, that you would use this time as we reflect on you, Lord, to stir in our hearts, Lord, a greater longing. God, our faith can often be buffeted and, and tossed to and fro at times by our circumstances in life. And Lord, at this time, we pray that we would be reminded of Jesus. God, would you establish us again, in a solid faith in you, and that we would express our faith in you through communion. Again, proclaiming 
the Lord's death until he comes, that when we take communion, we believe that you are the Savior. We believe that you have forgiven us of our sins, and we believe that you're coming again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.